Welcome to Utopias Now. What does it mean to do the right thing? Notions of justice such as doing good onto others or treating everyone as if they were your neighbour and being the good Samaritan have been in our collective consciousness for some time now. And yet, when we watch the news and we live our lives and we hold conversations with people, there is an alternative narrative that we often encounter and those narratives being one of corruption, inequity and even injustice. And whether this injustice is on the grounds of race, whether it's on the grounds of inequality or even on the grounds of gender, one does not have to strive very far until they come across such malfeasance. And this duality between good and evil it often spills over into the business world as well. And there are companies that strive to do good, but as well as companies that do bad. And these companies include the likes of Enron, such as Theranos and Wirecard. And despite these horrific accounts of business doing the wrong thing, there's often cases of people who are trying to do the right thing and bring a sense of integrity, a sense of fortitude and a sense of candor into the world of business. And one of those figures is Robert Chestnut, who is the former chief ethics officer at Airbnb. Rob is a graduate at the Harvard Law School and the University of Virginia, and he worked for 14 years in the U.S. Justice Department. And in 1999, Rob left the U.S. Attorney's Office and moved to California to become eBay's third ever um, attorney. And he handled a wide variety of cases, very interesting, such as stuff in litigation, in intellectual property, in regulatory and compliance matters as well. And this is not only for the U.S., but also globally. And later in Rob's career, he became the general counsel at Airbnb, and he grew the team there from a team of 30 legal practitioners to a team of over 150 professionals in 20 offices globally. So throughout the conversation, we talk about many things such as what is ethics, how it can be applied to companies and can it be applied to companies, and then also if motive is a necessary component in doing the right thing. And this led to some interesting debates and challenges. We all hope you enjoy as much as we did. And thank you for watching. Let's get to it. So if you'd like, if you'd like Rob to start off with the story, we're big into stories and any Greek philosophy as well, where that's welcome. <laughs> well, I mean, you, in, in our, in our pre uh, pre-podcast uh, session, you all mentioned Greek philosophy. So I thought I'd start off with Diogenes. I don't know if you, you two have heard of Diogenes. Diogenes is, uh, mm -hmm. was you know, well known for being a bit of a character in ancient Greece. I think he lived around 400 BC. You, you all historians can correct me. Uh, Diogenes was famous for giving up all of his worldly possessions. Uh, I believe that Diogenes actually lived in a tub, uh, if mm -hmm. I recall. Yes. And one of the things that Diogenes would do is Diogenes would, uh, would go to the marketplace in broad daylight. Uh, and Diogenes would carry a lantern with him. And he would walk right up to people and put the lantern right in their face like this. And people would say, Diogenes, what are you doing? Why in the world are you, uh, are you putting this lantern up in people's faces? And Diogenes used to reply, I'm looking for a person of honesty. I'm looking for a person of integrity. Now, uh, Diogenes had a nickname, Diogenes the Cynic, and as you might imagine, with a nickname like that, Diogenes did not have much luck in his walk through the marketplace. In fact, Diogenes claimed that uh, he could only find rascals and scoundrels. And 
the reason I bring this up is because, you know, every time we go online today and see an article about business, I think it feels a little bit like Diogenes, uh, that uh, there's always a story of another CEO that has been engaged in sexual harassment or another company that's using your data without your permission or putting out a product when it's not safe, right? It feels like the, the business world is filled with rascals and scoundrels today. And that's, I think, an interesting backdrop for our conversation and uh, for the work that I've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. And with that in mind, I mean, Diogenes is a very, um, a very interesting character, one that I've studied. And, and it seems like a, I've never heard of that lantern story, but I think that is a, a very interesting story and frame of reference to look through in terms of the business world, but even just wider, just in terms of like people making ethical decisions or being involved in ethical quandaries or um, decisions that are very difficult to make and may need to explore a gray area. But I'm interested to know, because when I first came across your profile, Rob, and I was just looking on LinkedIn, um, and I saw the title Chief Ethics Officer, I was absolutely uh, almost starstruck. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And the reason being is because I, I love it. I love studying ethics and business. And whether, whenever I talk to people about these two seemingly opposing ideas, people sort of, they look at you like business and ethics, like what are you talking about? And so for me, I've, you know, this idea of being an ethical officer or being someone that drives and puts forward the ethics of a company is, you know, something that almost is like dream worthy. And then I'm seeing it personified in, in, in you. And so I wanted to know from you and for maybe anyone that is watching or listening, like what is, what is a chief ethics officer and what does that look like? Well, I'm glad you like the name. I, I, they let me make up the name. And at the time I was the general counsel of the company. And what I was spending some time doing as the general counsel was implementing an integrity program. And it all started, you know, when I sat down with Brian Chesky one day, the founder CEO of Airbnb. And, you know, we were both seeing the articles about, you know, the rascals and scoundrels. And in fact, there were, uh, at that point, Me Too had just come out. And there were a lot of issues at Uber. And literally, Uber is right down the street from Airbnb. And and I think the, the companies both sort of grew up at the same time. So uh, I love learning from other people's mistakes. So when I saw the, the Susan Fowler blog post that blew up Uber and all the problems they had, you know, my first reaction was, uh, we better be thinking about this because, you know, there's no reason why we're immune from these sorts of problems. So, you know, I went in to talk to Brian about it and we, we got to the question, the philosophical question, how do you drive integrity into the culture of a company? And look, you know, Brian and I didn't have the answers right away. I mean, I talked a little bit with Brian about how companies traditionally had done this. And, you know, the, and, and I sounded silly as I was answering my own question. Things like, well, everybody's got a code of ethics, right? Uh, yeah, and the code of ethics is something that most companies go online and steal from another company. And then they put their own company's name up at the top. And then they email it out to everybody and they say, check a box saying you've read this. Like, wow, that's probably not going to have much of an impact on the culture of a company, right? Or here's another one. Compliance poster. These are my favorites. 
every company, I think, in the United States has got one of these things. And they're usually in the break room over in the corner where it's a little dark and there are some dripping pipes. And, you know, the, the font is four-point font. So you can't really read it, but I don't know that it was actually made for anybody to read. Uh, but by law, you've got to have one up there. And it's everything you need to know, right, about doing the right thing. And, you know, the more I went through this sort of stuff, it struck me that this was compliance. But there's a difference between compliance and ethics or compliance and integrity. You know, compliance is following the law to check the box so that you're following the law. Integrity is about doing the right thing because it's the right thing. So, you know, that day, Brian sent me off with the words, go big. And what came out of it was uh, an entire program at the company around integrity. Uh, and, you know, Brian came, you know, I think four years later, Brian looked at me and said, didn't think it was possible to actually make ethics cool, but somehow, you know, you've done it and the company's embraced it. And I, I think the idea of being a chief integrity officer or chief ethics officer really is about getting a company to think about doing the right thing. Uh, and because it's the right thing and, you know, quite honestly, because it's also the right thing for business. You, you mentioned this idea that, you know, in the old days, people thought of business and integrity as mutually exclusive terms, and they would almost laugh when you put them in the same sentence. In reality, today, I think that's all turned. I think that a company cannot reach its full potential without driving integrity into how it operates. And so I think a chief integrity officer is someone that is focused on that aspect of business and driving that throughout the culture so that you can be the most successful business that you can. Yeah, that's very interesting, um, Rob. Uh, I'm wondering, you brought about this difference between compliance versus ethics or integrity. And you're speaking about how uh, before things were done from a place of compliance and they needed to be done for legal reasons and that's why they were doing it. But now there needs to be another step forward. There needs to be uh, something else we need to do beyond just these sort of poster boards in the break room to drive change within companies. So I'm wondering a little bit about your motivation and why do you do what you do as a chief ethics officer or as a chief integrity officer? What motivated you to come up and take on this position and really think about this change and drive this change forward within Airbnb and then uh, further in other companies as well? Well, if you get integrity right, you're actually going to do compliance better. If you get integrity right, you're less likely to have the sort of blow-ups, you know, that, that now populate the internet so wildly. And so as a lawyer, you know, my job was to reduce risk. And so it actually, I think, I think came very naturally out of this idea that I'm going to protect the company's interest. I'm going to reduce risk. And, but I'm not going to necessarily do it the old way because the old way, frankly, isn't working anymore. The world's changing, right? You know, look, in the old days, y'all, you know, the, the, uh, the world looked at business and said, make money. That's what matters. You know, this idea of, you know, Milton Friedman and focus on what's good for the shareholder. 
as long as it's good for the shareholder, it's good. That actually hasn't worked so well. And in this new connected world where employees are empowered more and more and where the world needs companies to think about more than making money, the old way of thinking just isn't working. So if, if you want to survive as a business in this new world, you've got to do things differently. So, you know, the, for me, this was, uh, Brian, you know, Brian Chesky always says, skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is. So, you, so you've got to see the direction that the world is moving in. I see the world moving in the direction of expecting more from leaders and companies. That means bad behavior is not getting swept under the rug anymore. It, you know, the, because you know, in the old days, when, guys, when I was growing up, there were three news stations and that's where you got your news. Or you know, you, maybe you went back to my, like my parents' bedroom to Encyclopedia Britannica. That's where you got knowledge. Well, today, everybody is their own news station. You two are running a news station. Every time I post, I'm running a news station. Here's, the, uh, here's my camera crew. It's my smartphone. And therefore, in this new world, there aren't secrets anymore. Stuff gets out. It may take a little while, but bad behavior gets out. And people care now deeply. Employees, I'll start with employees. Employees want more than a paycheck. Employees actually want to work at a place where they feel proud and feel that the values are aligned with their personal values. They want to feel like they're changing the world. So if they see a company acting in a way that is not aligned with their values, well, in the old days, they really couldn't say anything, right? Because they were going to stay at the company for 30 years and get a gold watch and a severance and a, and a pension. Not anymore. Today's employees are very mobile, empowered. They are running their own news stations. And therefore, they're speaking up. And, and they're not the only ones. Uh, you know, the um, customers are speaking up, right? Uh, 10 years ago, customers didn't care much about the values of the companies they did business with, according to a variety of studies. I think less than 10% of consumers uh, looked at that issue 10 years ago. Today, that number is over 70%. 70% of customers care about the values of the companies that they do business with, and they will move their business to do business with companies that are aligned with their values. This is conscious consumerism. So, and then of course you've got government, which is now more and more finding its voice against what big tech and against companies that are polluting the, uh, the environment with carbon, right? Or polluting streams. Uh, or uh, violating your privacy. So companies now have got it coming at all sides. So you've got you to be thoughtful about this. You've got to address it. And in fact, you've got to get ahead of the curve. Integrity is a double-edged sword. Integrity can wreck your career and wreck your business if you don't think about it and get it right. But if you get it right, it can actually help drive your business. It can be wind at your back. Data shows that companies that operate with integrity according to neutral standards actually outperform the market and outperform their competitors. So if you don't get this right, you aren't going to be successful in business over the long run.
Absolutely. And so just to summarize everything you're saying, because there was a lot that was said there, which a lot of it I agree with, and I'd be interested to see what Shashwit says. But to begin with, you were talking about it's important to see where the puck is going rather than where the puck is. And what the, how I interpret that is, is that the world is changing. What our values are change and what we think are, or whatever our definitions of certain things are change as well. And so what the definition of business was in the 80s when Milton Friedman came out with his article about, you know, raising shareholder wealth. And that is the only thing, you know, that is what business was in maybe 30, 40 years ago. But now business is much more than that. And we can see that through customers holding business accountable through business leaders and lawyers and other professions like yourself holding businesses accountable and making sure that there's a chief ethics officer or making sure there's more than compliance. All of these things are changing. That's right. But, but I, I'm going to take some shots at Milton Friedman while we're at it. I think what Milton Friedman did, Milton's, Milton Friedman's theory was music to the ears of executives. Mm. Why? Well, mm. because if all you're focused on is shareholder value, guess who's a shareholder? The executives. Who benefits when the stock price goes up? The executives do. Milton Friedman actually helped executives feel good about focusing exclusively on money. In fact, he made them feel as though if they didn't focus exclusively on money, they were somehow doing something wrong. Yeah. So it's okay to pollute the air with carbon. Right? It's yeah. okay to get your supplies from some factory on the other side of the world that mm. mistreats their employees. Mm. It's good. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. Now, at that same time, there was another school of philosophy. And actually, some of it came from the University of Virginia, where uh, I went to school. And that was called stakeholder capitalism. Yeah. It's a different type of capitalism. It was a capitalism that said that investors are important. But mm. why are investors the only thing that matters? That's crazy. Mm. Don't employees matter a little bit too? Don't customers matter? Don't the communities where you operate matter too? And you should be thinking about all of these things when you make decisions. So gradually now, Milton Friedman's theories have been discredited. In fact, there, I think there was an academic, I, I'm not gonna say the name, I'm not positive. I, 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 uh, it's I think not it's Alex Edmonds, uh, because we, uh, it could be Alex Edmonds, because one of his philosophies is very much one of um, stakeholder capitalism, and what he refers to as growing the pie, and making sure you're raising the value of all stakeholders, as opposed to a certain few, and, and focusing on, um, you know, not positive sum games. One of the early academics that, uh, where Milton Friedman got his ideas, has actually now later come out and said it was the worst mistake of his academic career. Coming out with shareholder capital is a terrible mistake and he's repudiated it. And mm. now business is starting to repudiate it as well, at least in words, right? Mm. Now some companies are actually starting to do it in action. And I think those are the companies that are skating to where the puck's going. Mm. By the way, I think Airbnb did that. And I think Airbnb, uh, I can give you some examples if you like of a couple yeah, of things. Yeah, for sure. And, and just before that, Rob, we, I, I was, something that is burning, a burning question that relates to this metaphor of going where the puck is going and contrasting that with shareholder capital, capitalism versus maybe stakeholder capitalism is that uh, speaking from a straight philosopher point of view, I think it is very important to understand where the motives are placed uh, about when we're asking the question, you know, doing the right thing. So, you know, there, there could be a, a number of reasons why people do the right thing, right? Um, it could be because, you know, th th it, is a, it is logically consistent or because it, it isn't con it's not coherent with their values. And so they have to be coherent with their values and they choose to do those things. There's a number of reasons. But then I also believe that there can be misplaced motives. And what that means, what I mean by that is that 
is that people do certain things for certain reasons, maybe because it's trendy or maybe because everyone is doing it. And it's sort of like following the herd because we, I want to make sure that I am doing what everyone is doing. So sort of like a group think point of view or maybe something along those lines. So something I, I wanted to challenge you on is this idea of going where the puck is going. I think it's really important that businesses are moving in the right direction and businesses are doing the, the right thing. But I would like to question a lot of the things that businesses are doing, whether that's Airbnb or any other business about what, like, obviously like it's important to do the right thing, but why is it important to do the right thing? Because maybe doing the right thing because it is going to, in the end, the byproduct is profit or maybe the byproduct is sharing value. That could be the, a good outcome, but maybe the motive is the more important thing. And that's what I'd like to challenge you on. Is is that motive the most important thing? Um, I don't, motive's nice. Uh, I think as we are an increasingly connected and complex world, there's so much interdependence now. Uh, I need... We all need each other more than ever. We can't operate in our own lane anymore. You know, climate change is a great example of that. Uh, COVID is another example where, you know, something in one part of the world can affect all of us. So, I mean, I think one reason it's so important to do the right thing is that if we all keep operating in our own lanes, we are going to destroy the very planet where we live. And so there's, I think, a sur simply survival is a great reason. Um, another reason, of course, is make more money. Uh, you know, the irony is by doing the right thing, I actually believe you end up better off financially. And there are some people, uh, I may not reach people for the first reason. I, I might not be able to convince someone that the, uh, that the survival of our planet and, our, and, and ourselves as human beings depends upon us starting to work more cooperatively together. But I may reach some, other, some of those other people with the message that you're gonna actually be more financially successful if you do the right thing. Uh, there's a great book, and I, it is, uh, I, I'd highly recommend it to you and your, your audience, uh, called Give and Take. And you know, you know, Give and Take is a wonderful book because uh, it, Adam Grant, I believe is the, the author. Mm, yeah, he's great. What Adam Grant has found in his studies is uh, there are givers and takers in the world, right? There are givers. Those are people who do things for others. They're empathetic. They care about their their fellow man, and then there are takers that are always selfish and focused on what's right for themselves. Who's better off financially? If you gave a giver a certain amount of money at the beginning of the year, and you gave a taker a certain amount of money at the beginning of the year, who's gonna have more money at the end of the year? And the, the fascinating uh, answer to that question is, it's the giver, the person that does more for others. You know, why? Well the giver is actually going to make more friends. They're going to get more people to root for them. They're going to have more, uh, more people who, want, who trust them and want to work with them. So they're gonna come out better. And look, I think it's the same in business. Uh, and I, I think that companies that operate with authenticity and look, the right thing isn't always clear. And we can talk about that because there, there's not gonna be a universal definition of what integrity means. But companies that define a North Star, define a purpose. And by the way, profit is not purpose. You've got to define why you exist and why you're good for the world. You've got to have that North Star. And then you've got to make decisions in a manner that's consistent with that North Star. And when you do that, I think you're going to actually be more successful as a business. 
with all that in mind, you mentioned something and Shashwan and I have been watching a couple of your podcasts that you were on and there was seemed to be a lot of talk about integrity because that is the focus of that's one of the one of the words in your book title but something (laughs) two words in the book title (laughs) exactly yeah of course and um but something we were quite interested in which we hadn't come across yet is your definition of ethics and uh we talk about susan liotto who's a stanford professor which we saw that you you had an interview with her and she writes in a, a great book called um the power of ethics and one of her chapters is called banishing the binary and navigating the gray space and i think before we navigate the gray space and before we explore territory that's not been explored before it's important to understand what ethics is so i want to understand what do you mean by ethics and what is your definition yeah you know i like the word integrity better than ethics uh, and I, I think though i use them interchangeably uh so for me it's about well, let's go with the classic definition of integrity. That's doing the right thing even when no one's watching. Uh, the, the problem, of course, in today's world is somebody's always watching. Uh, integrity is an ethics, if you will. It's about defining a North Star, defining what you stand for, defining how you're going to operate in circumstances. And it, I think in order to have any credibility, that definition has to be consistent with some norm in society that at least a, lo- a significant number of people in the world would define as a good thing. And, and then actually your words and actions should follow that North Star, even when it's hard. And I think when so you do we- it, that's integrity. Now, I should add to that that nobody's perfect. I'm not, I've written a book about integrity. I am not perfect. And anyone who is, who, if they followed me around with a camera 24 hours a day, seven days a week, would be surely able to find clips where I'm not at my best. And, and, I, haven't, and I haven't been perfect. None of us are. So I don't think integrity requires perfection. But what I think it does require, it, it requires some level of self-awareness so that a recognition that when you do, as it's inevitable, when you do stray, from that North Star and that purpose. When you miss, as we all miss because we're all human, you've got the self-awareness to recognize that you've missed and to acknowledge it and maybe even study a bit of why you missed and then recommit to getting back on that path again. So it's not about perfection, but I think it's about a commitment, an intentional commitment. Yeah, it's very interesting you bring that up, this idea of perfection versus a commitment towards the North Star because as you know, the name of our podcast, Utopia, is now. Utopia, on one hand, might seem like this perfect society, but in reality, what we're trying to say or make put the message out there is that it's not about that one day we're going to be perfect, but it's about the day one and making this progress and thinking about how can we be better human beings. But I would like to now um, sort of summarize a couple of things you'd said and uh, Uh, challenge a couple of uh, thoughts that you put out. So you spoke about how uh, your job is to reduce risk and, uh, uh, you know, employees want to feel like they're making a change in the world. And so to have this sort of culture where they can feel that is important. And then there's this whole uh, movement towards conscious consumerism and companies again, uh, sorry, governments against companies taking action. So it's important that if companies want to be successful, then they must keep all these things in mind. And one of the most important things you said is that there are no secrets today integrity before was doing the right thing when no one was watching but today integrity is doing the right thing and in one of the podcasts you said and thinking or assuming that everything you do will be on the first page of every newspaper 
So I would like to question that very belief and um, ask you, where does that sort of uh, response come from? Giving because I want to get more or I, I acting out of integrity because I will, if I don't, then I will be uh, exposed for it or something may happen and I'm essentially going to not survive, right? As you brought up this need for survival. To what extent is this a fear-based response? Or on the other hand, how can we make it a response where we're not doing as it as a means to an end, just out of fear, but as an end in itself to thrive rather than just survive? Yeah, I mean, I would always put fear as if I were to rank order why I would want someone to do the right thing, I would rank order fear at the bottom. But I'd rather somebody do the right thing for a low, a lower, more base reason than to do the wrong thing. So, and I think we're all different. I think all, you know, look, we, we all come from different upbringing, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different life experiences, uh, different religions, different cultures. I think each of us is going to um, be res more responsive to something for different reasons. It, certain reasons may speak to certain people more than others. Uh, in, in a sense, I don't care why you do the right thing. Um, uh, I, I, and maybe it's a, a combination for all of us. You know, maybe it's not so simple as, well, I did it for, uh, because I deeply believe it's the right thing to do, not because out of fear. Maybe it's 90-10 for me. But the, the key for me is do it. And I, I'm open to the idea that each of us might do it for different reasons. That makes a lot of sense. So. I'd like to further ask about this notion that you brought up doing the right thing versus wrong thing. And given the different backgrounds and circumstances and cultures we come from. So to give a little bit of background about me, as I said, I come from India and you might have heard of the stories of India and how, at least in my view, it's an extremely crony capitalistic society. And everyone here does things through their connections. And I have been basically told that if you want to do business in India, then you must separate ethics and integrity and all those sort of things to be able to do it. And I always questioned as a child, well, no, that's not the right thing to do. Why would I bribe someone to get something done? That just seems like the wrong thing. But I was just told, well, boy, if you want to survive in this world, if you want to actually be able to do business in India, then you have to do it. And first I'm like, oh, these guys, these old people are just, you know, they, they, they've lost their minds. They don't know what they're talking about. But then when I, with my eyes saw and heard of stories about how people were forced into doing quote unquote the wrong thing, I was shocked, including myself. So I'll give a story about some one of my friends who went through this. Um, and I'd be curious to know your thoughts about where you stand with right and wrong in this perspective. So basically what had happened is that uh, one of my friends, his business was operating in this sort of uh, little town and um, you know, in order to thrive in that town, there were these gundas in Hindi or basically thugs of the area who often come, come to the house of the big business owners. And they basically, you know, with like hundreds of people, they stand outside, they come up with guns, they come up with sticks, all sorts of weapons. And very nicely, they'll say, it's time for us to collect our, our they will, they'll never say bribe, but 
it's time for us to collect our money or in, in sweeter words, they say it. And if there's a person who says, well, no, that's wrong, that, that's the wrong thing to do. I will not bribe you. And uh, yeah, no, I will operate my business in this area without any corruption or bribery, which may be considered the wrong thing to do. Then, well, that's that dude is going to be shot right there. And I've heard stories of people who've been shot because they were not willing to engage in it. So now that being said, to what extent is engaging in corruption or bribing people because uh, because like they needed to do it for their survival, a wrong thing to do compared to the right thing. How, where do you stand on that? I love, I love street philosophy because you, you put me in the position of choosing between advocating that someone gets shot or that someone end up being a corrupt, uh, it, uh, bribing officials. And it's, uh, it, it is hard. Look, I, I think that I'm going to start with this idea, this idea in science to answer the question. Integrity is contagious. Integrity is contagious. So is the lack of integrity. All of us are deeply influenced by what goes on around us. And the carriers, the primary carriers of integrity or, no, or lack of integrity are leaders. So if you are working at a company, where the leader honestly wants to do the right thing and is driven by good motives and has a, a, a noble North Star, that inspires everyone at the company to act in the same way, right? If the leader says, we're gonna do the right thing, we're not gonna, we're not gonna engage in bribery. Well, you're gonna have, a, you're, everyone is more likely to follow that because it's, we are influenced by those around us, particularly leaders. I say leaders are the thermostat of a company. Leaders create the environment, the temperature, where everyone in the company operates, right? So it's hard, if you're a mid-level manager in a company, it's hard for you to create that environment of integrity because you're a mid-level manager and your message of integrity might conflict with the leadership and you're gonna have a hard time getting anywhere. Uh, I think that what you may need to do, frankly, if you're in a situation like that, you got to survive. And what you then, but don't lose your North Star. So as you, be, as you become more successful, as you get more power, then use that success and that power to guide back to the North Star. And that, that may be the only answer because otherwise, you know, you getting killed is only going to reinforce the notion that operating with integrity is a mistake, right? So there are times where you, you know, you, if you're in that kind of a situation, survive and then move back to the North Star. Now, it, things may be different though if you are a US company operating in India. There's a great story, I think it's in my book, about a leader at Airbnb, a good friend of mine, who was earlier in his career a senior executive at Amazon. And he was opening up Amazon India. And he was in India and this topic came up. And he said to everybody in the room, look, we're not paying bribes. We're not doing it. It's against the law. It violates what our company stands for. We're not doing it. And a woman in the back of the room raised her hand and made an argument somewhat like yours. She said, look, We've got to get goods from one state to another state in India. If you cross that state line, there's a collector there. 
You got to pay the bribe or they're not letting the truck through. I can't do my job if, you, if we're going to have to operate that way. And my friend looked at the room. There were over 100 people in the room. And he said, I want everybody to pay very careful attention to what I'm about to say. All the truck drivers, I want you to tell them that if they get put in that situation where someone demands a bribe in order to get through the checkpoint, I want you to tell them to pull the truck over. I want you to tell them to call me. I want you to get them my number. I want them to call me. I will go to the top officials in the Indian government and tell them that we are pulling out of the country if, we're, if this is the way we have to operate. But we will not pay. Powerful message from one of the most senior leaders in Amazon. And you know what? That's exactly the way they did it. You know what? They don't pay bribes. They don't do it. But they can take that stand because of the power that they have as a large company. So using your power and your influence in that kind of a circumstance, I think is critical. If you don't have that kind of power or that influence, you may be in a position where, and again, a lack of integrity is contagious. You may have to go along with it for a while until you can get in a position where you don't have to do it anymore. That's the best answer I can give you to a difficult street philosophy question. I, I, I love that answer. Absolutely. And for context as well, um, Shash, I met Shashwan in India because I lived in India as well. So um, having that sort of well-rounded response, given that we both have experience living there is, uh, I think it's very impressive given the, the, the decision of this Amazon leader, because to do that takes a lot of what you'd say bravery. And that's what a leader is, is making, is leading by example and doing things that are not because it is because of the, the end product or whatever. It's because it's the right thing to do. And to do that, you have to have that power or to have that authority because otherwise it's just uh, at the cost of potentially your life, like in this, in this example. Um, yeah. And, and a this was something that Shashwa and I were deliberating when we were coming up with a few questions, which is there's so many instances around the world, like the, like the, the gang example that Shashwa brought up, such as the example that you brought up, Rob. Um, and there's much more graver circumstances as, as well as that, where people are in, where they have to make decisions. And a question that I was wondering is, there seems to be, so how I see it is that ethics is sort of a continuum and that at some sort of point and wherever you are, you have to start making ethical decisions. So like, for example, you could say, if you grow up in the West or if you grow up in a wealthy country, there's certain things that you're expected to do. You know, you pay your taxes or you do certain things because they are right, because that's what society has deemed as right. That's what the laws illustrate. Whereas if you, and I'll give you maybe another case in Australia, um, we have a big problem with refugees um, illegally coming, just like in America, how, the, uh, how there's uh, border issues and people not fulfilling the legal requirements. Uh, but you, and you can easily make the case that maybe they're, ex they're escaping much, much graver circumstances. And if they don't escape, they're going to die. And so a question I've been pondering, which I've been having difficulty trying to answer is, at what point of time do we start um, evaluating someone or not, maybe not evaluating, but I'm not too sure quite how to put it, but where do we start? Where do we start trying to embody and inculcate the sense of ethics into someone? Because everyone's circumstances are, are different. Everyone's circumstances are wrong and no circumstances are good or bad in some sense, because it's just the way they are. So where do we start? Like, where do we start? Let's face it. If the two of us were in that kind of a difficult circumstance, 
you, the two of us might be refugees as well, right? I mean, in other words, um, does leaving a difficult circumstance, one where your life might be in danger, one where you may have no way to make a living and get food, does leaving that circumstance to try to uh, immigrate, even illegally, into another country, does that lack integrity? I don't know. Uh, I, I, it would be easy for me to say the law is the law, but the, the, the truth is, the person who's immigrating in never, didn't have any voice in making that law. They didn't agree to that law. They're trying to eat. They're trying to survive. And who am I with my, look, I, I didn't have a, uh, a, a wealthy background by any stretch of the imagination, but I didn't have to worry about that. I had a roof over my head, I had food, and, you know, and I had uh, parents who cared for me. So, look, I, I think it's easy, it may be easy to be ethical and judge in those sorts of circumstances. I, I struggle with this as a prosecutor. Uh, I, I frankly quit being a prosecutor because I was tired of putting really young people in jail for dealing drugs. And, and it's not that I thought that what they were doing was right. I thought what they were doing was wrong. But I also think that society, uh, due to racism, due to uh, a number of factors beyond their individual control, put them in an extraordinarily difficult position where, you know, I, I wish that they had the strength of character uh, or physical strength in some cases to say no to that type of a lifestyle. But I had to honestly look at myself and say, if I had been born into that kind of circumstance, what would I be doing? It's hard. Absolutely. And this is an argument that I've heard Sam Harris make in his book on free will. Um, and it is, that's a whole other philosophical um, uh, rabbit hole to jump down, jump down. But it is, I, I agree, this is something that's really difficult. And I think when you look at the individual circumstances, and if you were to say to put yourself in those circumstances, I think everyone would be living exactly the way other people are living if they were in those circumstances. Uh, and that's all maybe in my own, my own belief that I'm imposing on that. But I, I think it's when you look at the individual circumstances, there's so much that can lead from from that. Um, and I'm the word empathy is really important. It's important yeah. for all of us to be thinking about others and the circumstances that they came from uh, and, and feel it and understand it. Uh, and look, we, we may be moving toward a far less nationalistic world and a more global world where you know, the, the, the rules and laws of individual countries uh, that, that try to put up barriers and protect you know, vested interests uh, the world may look back a hundred years from now and, and think, you know, what kind of people treated their fellow human beings that way and tried to, you know, hold on to their, their power and their wealth uh, to the exclusion of others. It's, uh, it, it's troubling. Rob, so you brought up this notion of why you left your job as an attorney and you didn't like prosecuting people for these very beliefs that, you know, you had this empathetic side of you where you understood and empathized with their circumstance and to put them in jail for their circumstance was quite difficult. So I'd like to take a step back from ethics and ethics within the realm of a company and like talk a little bit more about on a societal level. 
And I'm wondering, given that so many of these issues are not black and white answers, that people do things for their best interest in that moment due to that circumstance and to completely deem that wrong and bad and like just put them in jail for that might be more problematic as we're looking at you know the mass incarceration system in america and how that's a whole big issue so i'm wondering from a legal perspective how can we navigate these gray spaces and how can we create a more empathetic legal system where we're not deeming people as bad or wrong or putting them in jail for their circumstances but um, coming from a place of empathy and navigating those gray spaces, because it's hard navigating that being in that gray space in a legal position. I mean, when we don't have a consensus towards right and wrong and everything just is on a philosophical level, it sounds great, but on a legal level to actually get things done and to have order in society, it can be quite tough. So I'm wondering, how do you navigate those spaces? Yeah, you need order. Right? And, I, and I, you know, my earlier remarks, don't construe them to think that prosecutors are bad. Uh, they're needed and order is important. One thing I think we do need to do, and I don't have all the answers, but we have to get, we have to get away from this world where the people that are making the laws um, are doing things for political reasons. And I think what we had back in the, in the 80s um, were politicians who were one-upping each other. Oh, you think you're tough on crime. I, you know, I want them in jail for 10 years for dealing crack. And then, the, then somebody else says 10 years, you're soft. It ought to be 20 years. I'm the tough one on crime. And I, I, what I've seen too often is, you know, politicians making, doing things like this, not because they believe it's the right thing to do, but because they think it's going to get them elected. And I, I, what I would love to see is, uh, the individuals who are involved in politics try to do the right thing instead of try to do the thing that will get them elected. And I, I think more thoughtful legislation uh, that, that is not so political based. I mean, we are so divided as a country in the United States. And by the way, we see this in a lot of places around the world. We end up with two political parties and Anything that the, the rule, the, the party that has power tries to do, the other side automatically opposes it, even if it's great, even if it's a wonderful idea. They oppose it because they don't want to give the other side a victory. And so it becomes more of a uh, us versus them when in fact we're all one country. And in a bigger sense, we're all one world. And I think we need to get away from the, the thinking of uh, individuals who have power only focused on keeping power. We, we need is we need people in power trying to do the right thing for the world, uh, regardless of whether they think it will get them elected or whether they, their, their quote unquote political party uh, might benefit from it or not. Absolutely. And this is an idea that I've, we talked about, or at least I talked about with someone we interviewed recently is an ex consultant at BCG and McKinsey. His name is Paul Millard. Um, and he, he was making a LinkedIn post and he was talking about how um, there's, you know, there's certain leaders that are at the positions they are because they've ha and they've done things to get in those positions, but they may not necessarily be good leaders. So they may, um, they may have gotten there for reasons because they're ruthless and I mean, no, no judgment imposing and just for certain conditions have gotten there. And I asked him a question. I said, isn't it, 
isn't the idea of a good leader, isn't there something inculcated in that definition of goodness or being ethical or doing the right thing? Why isn't that encompassed in good leaders? Because if that was the case, then all the leaders today wouldn't be committing fraud or, or X, you know, X, Y, and Z, like just as an example. And he said, his response was, is that, um, yes, that is true, but certain leaders are not incentivized by certain, they're incentivized by certain things. And they will pursue their incentives because that is what they're being incentivized by. And I think that's the incentives argument that economists uh, often cite. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Like, how can we incentivize good leadership in that case, whether that's in the sense of, of, of politics, in the sense of like presidents, like how do we incentivize good leaders or um, how do we incentivize good business leaders or just in general, good people? Yeah. You know, and the sad thing is in democracies, I fear that, the leaders we elect are a reflection of who we are. And until you know, we start uh, demanding integrity and good leadership from those that we elect, we, we, are, we deserve what we get. Look, I, I think today's world is such that the, the people that are most qualified to run for office, those that would be the best at it, why would they want to do it? It's it's such a mess, and you you end up uh, you end up being forced to spend all of your time fundraising, and you're constantly under attack. Um, look, I, unfortunately, I'm afraid that uh, that it is a reflection of who we are, and we we have to start looking at ourselves first uh, before we're going to get elected officials that we're satisfied. Yeah, that's very interesting you say that because uh, I got this response from my political science professor when I was shitting on the Indian government and the officers saying, oh, politics is dirty and like everyone here is corrupt and I hate politics because it's just so bad. And he said, well, my friend, take a good look at yourself because the, the state of society or the government officials are a reflection of the society. And that sort of blew me off. I'm like, whoa, 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 what are you saying, man? Like, I never thought that I could be responsible or I, I could be a part of this game. I was always just blindly blaming these people or they're at fault, like, this is the problem. Let's get these down. Let's put out different society or different government officials. We need a new system and like all for systematic change. But I forgot to look at myself. And then I was reminded of a, a quote by Mahatma Gandhi who says, be the change you want to see in the world rather than just pointing. And I, exactly. and I, I add the element of not only do you need to be it, but I think you need to influence those around you to be that way as well. So um, we can privately feel this way, but what we really need to do is we need to get out and talk about it and influence other people. Uh, and, and hopefully, if, if we articulate it well and make sense, we can start electing the kind of people that we'll be proud of. So that being said, Rob, um, I'm wondering, you, you mentioned how be, having integrity is a double-edged sword and it's the job of a leader to set the temperature and make that environment where people are feeling safe to, be, to have integrity and to do the right thing, as you said. I'm wondering if you could speak more about what are some practical ways to actually do this, whether that's on a company level, whether that's on a, you know, even at, on, at home. I think this is happening in any space or even on a political level. How can, 
how can we create spaces where integrity is the way to go and there's a culture for integrity? Yeah, well, they're always watching you. So have a North Star, have a purpose, articulate it, and then make decisions consistent with it. You'll inspire others. And I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, about five years ago, you know, Airbnb was hit with a number of allegations around discrimination on the platform. Users were reporting that, you know, if you're black, you can't get a room, that black guests were being turned down by, by hosts on Airbnb. And there was a hashtag, Airbnb while black. Uh, California filed a class action lawsuit against us. Uh, plaintiff's lawyers were filing lawsuits. And it was a, it was a powerful moment for the company because um, I think the initial reaction inside the company is, well, this can't be right. No, they, they, that wouldn't happen on our platform. But I, as we looked at it more and more closely, uh, I, we began to see that it was true that you know, user that, that hosts, certain hosts um, were doing this. Now you don't know which host cause you don't know, you don't know why someone turns someone down, but if you look at the overall data, clearly it was harder if you were a user of color to get a room than a white user. So I went off and did my legal research. Is Airbnb legally responsible if its hosts discriminate? Do the discrimination laws even apply to Airbnb? Because look, this is a home. It's not like you're running an apartment building, right? So I go off and do my legal research. I go sit down with Brian. I start going through the law to Brian. Brian looks at me and says, stop, I don't care. I said, what? What do you mean you don't care? And Brian said, Rob, our mission as a company is to connect people. It's about encouraging people to get from out behind their computer, get out into the world, meet other people, particularly meet people who are different than they are, to be living, get in neighborhoods, be immersive when you travel. And when you do that, you'll start to understand other people, connect with them as human beings, and hopefully make the world a better place. That's what Airbnb is about. And he said, Rob, if this is true, that people are discriminating on Airbnb, we are failing as a company. We're failing. It doesn't matter what the balance sheet says, we're failing. And so Brian said, so Rob, I don't care what the law says. You go deal with the law. We're gonna fix it because we have to. And Airbnb then went out and engaged in a pretty a remarkable, I think, effort to fight discrimination on the platform. By one example, Airbnb created a, a landing page when you first got on the, to the site wasn't buried in a privacy policy or anything. It was right there in front of you. It said, I agree, or I, I pledge that I will accept all, regardless of the color of their skin, their nationality, their race, their religion. Now that's not the law in a lot of places, but Brian said, I don't care. And people said, well, what happens if somebody says no, and they, they don't agree to the state? Brian said, well, then they're gone. They're off the platform, just like that. And we lost 1.1% of our users in a month, gone. And Brian said, I don't care. 
because there was something more important than making money, at least in the short term. And I think we all believed that by doing this, we might lose some people, but in the long run, we would actually be more successful as a business. And, but we were operating according to a principle that was well articulated that everybody in the company knew when things got tough, we made decisions based on that principle, not on what the money said. And I think that's what it's about. It's, and, and that sort of thing inspires other people, inspired employees. I think it inspired a lot of people around the world. And you know what? The, loss, uh, the lawsuits went away. Regulatory efforts, gone. Because you didn't need them. And I think that's, what, that's an example of what leadership's about. And this relates in some sense to a Buddhist principle or a Buddhist, a Buddhist idea, which is you following your innermost path or following the path that is what you believe is the right path. And I think it, how this relates is that what I interpreted from what you were saying is that we have to live a principled life. We have to have a North star, as you said, to have a certain set of values that we live in accordance to. And not only do we have that in the background and sort of forget about it after we write it, but we have to actively live and try to um, embrace it and try and in, in, in incorporate that in every one of our decisions. And Susan Leota in a book talks about how you can do this as a number of ways, but it sounds like it's a, it's almost like a religious practice, so to speak, is that ethics is, is the, is how we have to live our lives is we have to live in accordance with these things. To, to pick another word that I like, you have to be intentional about it. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just say I'm a good person. So I'm not going to lie, cheat or steal. I'm a good person. I don't have to worry about this stuff mm. and just expect it to naturally happen. You mm. have to be intentional. Mm. You have to define it mm. and you have to refer back to it. Mm. You know, Brian, one of the things I like about Brian is he didn't go to business school. Mm. Uh, Airbnb was his first job <laughs> out of college, right? CEO of now a major, you know, multi-billion, a billion, I don't know how many hundred plus billion dollar company. His parents were social workers. And that's what, so to him, success isn't defined by the number at the bottom of the balance sheet. It's something bigger. And I, that inspires employees, it inspires customers, it instills trust with regulators. And I think you know, it, it's, it, it's what business in the 21st century is going to look like. Absolutely. And um, there's so many ideas there, which I'd love to, to pull apart, like um, having cognitive diversity and having leaders that are not only MBA students, but students that are, I think like Brian Chesky also went to design school. I watched right. an interview with him and yeah. um, a couple other things. And I think Elon Musk even says, you know, we need uh, leaders that are engineers or leaders that are X, Y, and Z. But that aside, you talked about uh, something just before as we get to the end of the interview, you used, you talked about having the courage to be, to be intentionally, uh, to be intentional about what you're doing to have integrity. And as someone that is, a someone that is going to the professional world, there's a lot of businesses that you can choose to be a part to choose to work for. And in Australia in particular, some of the best graduate jobs you can work for at companies where they have historic antecedents or any, they have some sort of history of maybe doing the wrong thing. And as a, as someone that is going out into the world and wanting to work and doing all these things, a question that I often ponder is why do people continue to work 
for these companies. And, and obviously the reason is because they have the best opportunities, the best sort of resources. And there's so many opportunities and that can come from working at these companies. It's very clear why people would work for them, but is choosing to work from them implicitly agreeing to all the things that have been done or following that path. And I want to just say, you know, guys, like we have to change this. Like that's something it's like in a dialogue, like what, like let's rebel or, you know, there's a sort of inner revolution, ethical revolution. Like we have to change this all. Um, and I was wondering like, how do you find the courage to be that leader in the ethical sense? Well, you're seeing it already in the world. I mean, there's an increased competition around the world for labor and companies are, are finding more and more that, They've got to provide a compelling business proposition to get people to go to work there and stay there. And a big part of this, again, money's part of it, but it's not just money. It's, are you going to change the world? Here's how we're going to change the world. We've got a mission that inspires you. So I think we are seeing already that people want to be inspired. Companies that can do it in an authentic way will attract those employees. And I, and, and I think in that way, this, again, this integrity revolution that I, that I talk about in the book, it, we're seeing it and it, the, that's where the puck is going. And the, yeah, sure. The more you, you, look, you got to eat. And so I'm never going to be critical of someone who takes a job at a company that uh, might not resonate with their values, but it's not what you want. That shouldn't be your North star. All of us, I think, should want to work at a place that speaks to us as human beings and uh, aligns with our principles. I want that for everybody that hears this podcast, right? Um, something that where you can make a fair living, uh, something you're good at, something you enjoy, and something that I think really speaks to you inside. Thank you for sharing that, Rob. And that leads me to the very last question we like to ask all our guests, which you sort of answered, but I'd still like to put it there and see what you have to say about it, which is, or uh, on a societal, political, legal level, what does your utopia look like? For me, I think it's a, a utopia of a, of a world that is connected um, and, you know, one that is filled with people who are, you know, each, I think, trying to live according to their North Star, I think with an, em with an empathy and understanding for, for others who are doing the same thing. Uh, you know, I, I think right now, unfortunately, we are still too much in our own lane. And the world, the world I think, needs all of us to get out of our lane. Uh, uh, and I think adopt a course that recognizes that we are all connected as, as the human race. And, you know, in our words, our actions, and in what we do every day, work toward that greater connectedness. Wow. Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you. Uh, this whole metaphor of the lane resonates a lot with me and it resonates with the values of this podcast, which is to see, see things from a bigger perspective instead of being bogged down into these silos or these lanes that you brought up and see that everything or everyone is connected. If we are able to see things from a different eye or be more empathetic and have our true North Star, as you said. So 
uh, I just like to give an opportunity to for you to say any last few words to our listeners or maybe about your book, if you'd like to plug that in or anything about that. My publisher, I'm sure, would love for me to talk about the book. So if the sort of things that you know we talked about here today are, are resonate with you at all, uh, there's a book. It's called Intentional Integrity. It's available fine bookstores everywhere all around the world. It's even available, I'm pleased to announce, just in the last couple of weeks, it's now available in paperback with a snazzy new red cover. Very excited about that. Uh, if uh, you wanna learn more about what I do, there's of course a website, www.intentionalintegrity.com. And I'm on LinkedIn. I do a post about integrity two or three times a week. Uh, just uh, tell, tell me that you heard about my work through uh, this podcast. And I'd be happy to connect with you and uh, keep working together on, uh, I think, a world that has uh, greater integrity. Thanks for having me, guys.